players gather to play powerful lands, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Dark Depths, Wasteland, the Tabernacle of Pendrelville, and many others, battling head-to-head -head in a brutal landscape. They all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live and TheEpicStorm.com. What's up, YouTube? Uh, this is Anurag Das, Brian Cook, and Wilson Hunter hitting you live from the Eternal Glory podcast. We are in episode 10. Happy Sunday. How's it going, guys? Why did you say YouTube? What's up, Podbean? It's like what YouTubers say. They'll go like, what's up, YouTube? It's your boy. So I kind of like did our, our rendition of it. Shouldn't it be like, what's up, SoundCloud? I mean, that's where we upload. What's up, Leaving a Legacy Facebook group? Yeah, what, what's up, iTunes? What's up, YouTube? Uh, some people use Spotify. Let's give them some love. Nice, <laughs> nice, nice. I like that. Uh, and for more platforms, if you ever want us out on those, feel free to uh, reach out to Brian, and he'll definitely take care of that. This week, we've got some interesting things to talk about. We'll we'll run into it, but it looks like it's going to be something in the, the ballpark of Brian's playing field, the state of combo. But uh, as usual, before we get into that, let's talk about these quick hits. <laughs> um, and also, we had a, a Reddit listener today talk to a, or leave a message for us about what the quick hits are. So not going to lie, in our show notes, we have a segment for quick hits. And basically what we do, it's just like the the overview, preview, I don't know, like the the banter, I guess, you know, where we just catch up with you guys, talk about, you know, like donations and things like that. So yeah, just roll right into it. No donations this week, but we do want to say for, you know, just the viewers or some listeners are aware, we actually were able to hire a new editor for the podcast. Thanks, Phil. And you got a taste of the edit quality in the last episode. In my opinion, it was just fantastic. Phil Blackman. Thank you, Phil. Catch his deets at Force of Phil on Twitter. And uh, you may know him actually as the host of uh, the legacy podcast, Eternal Dirtles. Also check the Eternal Glory podcast website for, for more of his contact information, deets, things like that. And he puts a lot of time into this. And this is a relevant topic to the fact that we did not receive any donations in the last few days because we just want to tell you all that if you do choose to donate to our show, it goes towards helping edit and host this podcast. So we don't make anything off of this podcast because of the costs associated, such as the editing. And we appreciate your donations. I've been the one who's been editing the podcast before. And oh my God, I actually noticed such a significant difference between like, like all those sort of like weird things that Phil was just like aware of that I had no idea about. So that's kind of exciting. And I'm looking forward to the next few episodes just being like clean, crisp. I thought that he did an amazing job. And one of the biggest perks, in my opinion, is Anurag had less of a salty mood all week, knowing that he didn't have to edit it. 
That's exactly what I was gonna Dude, say. I, I I'm not gonna lie. Which it's just like the thought of like editing it is like it's like an insurmountable mountain. And I'm thinking like, you know what I could be doing otherwise? I could be talking to my boys about dogs. I could be petting my dog. I could be streaming for the fifth time in five days. Speaking of which, Bryant, you had a really good weekend last weekend. I did. Speaking of YouTube, Anurag's favorite hosting platform, you can check out my Legacy Challenge. I uh, was lucky enough to win the challenge, and I uploaded all 10 matches. So go watch them. Clicking on an ad, uh, it gives me like five cents, I think. Cha-ching! YouTube, uh, whatever Anurag is for Twitch. Affiliate? No. uh, Sponsored? I don't know. That's the equivalent of what I am on YouTube. Yeah, it's really weird. I heard like, so apparently I found out for like, if you don't have like the number of requisite subscribers, like YouTube gets to collect all the money rather than like whoever's putting up the content, collecting a portion of it until they hit like that. one. But you hit that, right? Like a while ago. I did. It's like 1000 subscribers. Yeah. You need 1000 subscribers. And I want to say like 40,000 hours. I could be wrong. It's like 4000 or 40,000 hours watched, but I had triple the amount of hours required. So I just needed the subscribers. That's legit. Cha-ching! All right, cool. So that's the legacy challenge, Wilson. What are we? What are we thinking about now for Cardboard Live? What's been done? What's going to be done? Uh, when does my face make a cameo in like one of the like pop? I don't know. Would you, would you do that for me? Just like make a pop up that's just like the Anarag button. Yeah. Oh sure. yeah. Currently, Cardboard Live, we we have a an interactive hover over feature set for Arena, including deck lists, player bios, things like that that we are beta testing on some streams right now. Some of the channels that are beta testing this for us include Gabriel Nassif's channel, Yellow Hat, and uh, Corey Bowmeister, and a few others, a few other of these streamers that are not, not necessarily legacy content. Obviously, this is this is Arena. And uh, so that, that's pretty exciting that we've been expanding out into that. So please, if you want to watch one of those channels, send us some feedback if you explore our interactive clickable card stream features. We're also we've also been working on integrated e-commerce on the stream to pay streamers for people purchasing cards through their stream. It's been a, a, a process doing that, but we're getting closer to being able to publicly launch some of that. Stuff. So, are the arena features live right now and like beta testing? They're live on beta testing. Yeah, we have we have basically have to send Twitch the the channels that we want to include it because it's not a publicly downloadable feature set yet. And those approved channels are beta testing, and then it'll probably be uh, publicly open to use on your own channel uh, in about one day. In two terms weeks. of your initial vision for Cardboard Live, what percentage of things do you think you've actually accomplished with it? You know what I mean? Before you'd call it like a, like when you first started creating or working on Cardboard Live, you had an idea of how much you wanted to get done with it. Would you say that you're like halfway complete with that initial goal? That's a really good question because it also, it allows me to talk about how I don't really think of things in those terms necessarily. I set I set out to solve some pretty large problems and tried to be flexible with uh, the path that we followed to solve them. So one of the major problems that I set out to solve was monetization of stream, gaming game streaming content for content creators and how uh, it's it's very difficult to get to the point where you can you know maybe quit a job to do content full time or uh, make a, a serious dent with subscriber ad revenue. So we, we saw an opportunity to try to connect the e-commerce purchasing behavior to streams. And we're still working on that. So I don't think I'm anywhere close to, 
necessarily solving that, but it's one of these bigger problems we're trying to solve. And through the interactive feature sets, uh, that's how we're really trying to get there. So I still think we're early on in the process. We're also still mostly just focused on magic. And, you know, another part of my big vision is to do this for a lot of different, different games as well. We have some really cool image recognition stuff for, for tabletop magic that are not, that's not publicly launched, but we've made a lot of progress on that. So Cardboard Live has, it's, it's been a few cool features that people have been able to play with, but I'd say the vast majority of our work has been on a lot of stuff behind the scenes that we will hopefully be able to put out there in, in the next uh, few months to a year, but have required some of the major partners we're working with, such as Twitch or these other companies, to get to a certain point in the process so that we could do that. That's like a lot of stuff that I don't get to hear about all the, like the sweet technologies associated with, I don't know, just... Watsy gaming, magic stuff, things like that. I think I guess like lastly on my end in terms of like streaming content, it's sort of just like the same uh, drum and roll sort of deal, you know, get online, play games, <laughs> come up with some crazy stuff, try to try to increase my viewership. So it's, it's going along too. I'm um, just sort of like grinding it out right now, uh, working on a new deck that I don't know, like it seems like it might have potential, but like over the last few days, I think I may have like hit like a correction in terms of the, the results. Also, probably like not not playing as well as I, I should be, but shameless plug: twitch.tv slash onz104. I'll always be there. I don't see another place to ask you about this, so I'm going to ask you about it now. And we'll probably get more hate on Reddit for going on tangents before we get started on things. But I've noticed that you're basically playing a deck that is in no way, shape, or form miracles, but you've added terminuses into the deck so that it's called miracles. It's interesting for me to see you do this because I've never seen you play a deck that it, that is this different from traditional miracles before. And you really seem to be enjoying yourself quite a bit. Yeah, so for context, what the deck I'm playing right now is basically I would call it four color miracles. It's what I have been calling it. Think of uh think of it as just like the basic miracle shell. So it's got brainstorm, it's got ponder, it's got terminus and swords to plowshares, force of will, jace the mind sculpture. And then it also has red and six. And I don't know if we're just jumping all over the place, but I, I've added red and six. And so I'm just sort of just like, there's like a deck building experiment that I'm working through right now. So that that's 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 kind of what it is. And like, there's like a whole tension of like making a deck that has functioning mana, but, but it has basics and four colors and, you know, still like does all the miracles things. And so it's been a, an adventure so far. I, I think the deck has potential, but it's going to take a lot of tweaking and time to make it work. You have this tone of really not wanting people to believe that it is anything different than Miracles, but you also are playing cards like Punishing Fire and Dak Faded, is that uh, correct? Yeah. And Wastelands. The Wastelands are in there as well, yes. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on, yeah. This isn't a bad thing in, in any way. I'm just I just think it's interesting. The terminuses are miracle mechanic cards, and then you have your traditional suite of blue cards that you would probably see in any sort of these four color mid range decks. Hypothetically, I guess it's four color miracles, or I could look at it and be like, "Hey, this is like sort of like four color pile, but it's playing terminus and swords instead of some black cards." Yeah, right? I think there's some fundamental differences between the two decks, just in the sense that, especially when you look at like the sideboard and some of the cards in the sideboard, you get an idea of how the deck will play out in like postboard games, and that's very similar to what miracles is doing like right like when you think of like a deck like four color check pile or whatever it's a very like tap out oriented strategy where you've got like your baleful strixes and your hymns and your this is and that's but this deck is still a lot more play terminus for one mana keep the rest of my mana up for the you know until their end step and that's when i'll do whatever i need to do i mean obviously i have like you know added the rens 
Ren's in the deck. Um, so that that changes the dynamic a little bit. But you know, even like the, the original Miracles list we're playing, counterbalance having some sort of like tap out threat. That, so it, like having a some number of threats, but like not tapping out every turn kind of deal. I don't know. Does that make sense? Like, what what is traditional Miracles anyways? It's kind of like that. Well, traditional miracles doesn't play uh, Rin and Six, Wasteland, Dak Fade, and Punish and Fire. But I do think it is a pretty interesting deck that you're playing. We'll call it Four Color Miracle. I mean, you're the creator, so you call it. Well, well I, right? I wouldn't so. say I'm the creator. I want to give that credit to oh, okay. our, our Swedish brother, Nicholas Lalo. Okay. Shout out, shout out to the Northern Europeans. By the way, this is a good time to plug the fact that they are our favorite listeners of the show. While we're on the topic of Northern Europeans, Marcus Ewald, is that how you say it? Ewald? Asked us to plug a tournament, and I forgot to put it in her show notes. Plug I think away. it's like the Viking tournament. <laughs> yeah, the tournament is some. It's a very Swedish word. Yeah, whatever it is. And we'll we'll so. post the information there. But it is. Uh, I think Marcus has run it for a couple of years now, and it's been pretty good tournament all every every year that he's hosted it. So we'll we'll have the information somewhere for you guys to check. It is on the twenty seventh of July. That is literally the only information he provided me. But uh, it is, in fact, the Viking event. Yeah, so I think there's like a Facebook page and it's got a lot more details. We'll try to connect uh, for any anyone in, in Northern Europe who's interested in jamming Legacy. Reach out to Marcus uh, and we'll, get, we'll, we'll see what we can get for you guys, too. I guess lastly, before we get into the feedback like we usually do. My favorite subtopic of the quick hits. Bryant has asked, how bleeping great is season three of Stranger Things? Bryant... I think from an artistic standpoint, and I look at things like I'm a graphic designer. I notice all the small details. So when I watch Stranger Things, I look at a lot of the production value and seeing how accurate they got some of the costumes and even down to like fast food wrappers of the 80s and how they match what it would have been in 1984. I think those are some of the smaller things that go into making the show so fantastic because they care about every little detail and it really shows in the finished product. I do want to point out that's the fourth time in the last hour that Bryant has brought up the fast food wrappers and Stranger Things. But I do know what you're saying. So I agree with Bryant on that point. I like the f- sort of flavor of Stranger Things, they, the setting, the characters. They do a good job with that. Where it falls a little short for me is the repetitive plot. Not going to give any spoilers, but I thought season one was really cool because it was something a little bit different. And then for me, it just sort of ended up being okay. But I know Bryant wants to probably punch me through this through the screen for saying that he loved season three. Hey, you're not alone, Wilson. I I think the same thing where like season one was where I was just like, ooh, ah, shiny. And now it's just like, I don't know, more of the same. I think what really bothered me, and I, I just kept seeing it over and over again. Like I saw it once and then I could not see it. It's just like from scene to scene, the transitions was just like, they'd leave on like a really like tense note and then go back to another situation where like they had left off earlier and then they would, you know, follow through with that scene and then leave off on a tense note. And then just like keep wrapping, rotating through scenes like that. And it was just like, I kind of wish there was a little bit more variety in the mechanics, or maybe I kind of wish I just hadn't seen it as many times as I did, but that's neither here nor there. I I would still give this like a good, like a seven out of 10. Nice. So I think one of the issues here is that you both want it to be as good as season one. And I think that's an unrealistic expectation. Like you shouldn't be always trying to reach where you were before but instead just make a good product like you're not always going to match the quality of the first thing that you did and i know that it's a problem that like musicians have too because you might create this really good album and then you never get back there but that doesn't mean you're not still creating good music would you give that advice to ant players 
who want their deck to be as good or better than Well, I mean, especially right now in the metagame, they'll just have to settle for being second tier. Oh, snap! Damn. Do you guys smell that? That's that's the scent of a just recently shot gun gunpowder. Damn it, that's what I meant. It smells like gunpowder. God damn it, Adorog. All right, cool. Well, that that is a perfect segue to get into feedback from the last episode. And we're going to start with an interesting comment by Sanzia, Reddit user Sanzia. Whoa, whoa, wait, whoa, wait, 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 wait. One... I know what you're thinking, and we're going to get to it. But first, Sanzia. Sanzia says... I just wanted to thank you guys for putting out a great podcast. Legacy has seen a resurgence of quality content lately, and I would consider you guys to be near the forefront of that movement. Also, this is the most important part. Also, Honorog is right about Dreadheart Arcanist. Nice. Sanzia, you have good taste. I made a joke about this earlier, but uh, yeah, let's go Team Dreadhard. Woo! Phil, this is where you put in like a sound effect for uh, just like the audience cheering. T-shirts will be coming out soon. I, I, for some reason, we've been talking about Dreadhorde for like ever. And I guess that's fine. That's not like a bad thing. But yeah, thank you for your feedback, Sanzia. Wilson, do you have anything to say about uh, this Dreadhorde fan? Hey, thanks for listening. <laughs> so our next bit of feedback is from D on Reddit. Players gathering to cast magic spells. How old and epic only time will tell. My favorite intro so far. Wait, wait, you got you got to do it in in the the uh the person's voice, you know, right? Right. Wilson, drop the beat. You ready? Let's go for it. God, that was like that had to have been the best opening that we've had so far, right? That kind of like creativity. I was not expecting it when we got it. So just just like one more like a refresher for um people who are just tuning in. Every episode has had a new person provide like an intro all the all the the speakers the guest speakers are different so uh at the end like on episode 50 i guess maybe we give away like a special prize to someone who can tell us every single guest that's been there some of them are obvious some of them even i didn't know when i had heard so i had to use a cheat sheet i have a spreadsheet with every single person and what cards they say because the first one says lightning bolt dark ritual force of will so i even keep track of the cards that are used I like it when they customize the opening to like the the cards that they play in Legacy. It's just like a nice little bit of like seasoning to the intro. Thank you, thank you for that intro. It definitely like made me smile every time I heard it. All right, so we got another uh, another comment here. So this is from James Shu. Hey, good episode. I think the whole MTGO meta can be summarized into one sentence that the brainstorm show guys discussed back in the day. It's like one large LGS. Well, thank you, James. First of all, I'd like to thank you for being a listener of this show. But maybe more importantly, thank you for listening to the Brainstorm Show. Really appreciate it. You sound like a great guy, so thanks. Do you remember saying this? Uh, I, I sort of do, but I think that that was sort of an ongoing theme when we would think about the Magic Online meta. And so I think we probably said that more than that's once. That's cute. I like that. I like that. One large, that's one big LGS. I want to say the active league currently is just under 200 players. So it's like a leaving a legacy open. Uh, well, that's still a lot of players, so I'll, I'll take it. So I don't think Anurag should have to read the last bit of feedback considering it's about, me. Uh, about him. So I will read it. It's from Julian Knob. 
And it's like one of the first comments we've actually gotten on our Facebook page. So thank you, Julian, for commenting on there. And for those of you that haven't followed our Facebook page, please do so. Love the episode, especially the part about better technical play. Checking the opponent's life pad is something I've often been doing too. Hot take. Anrag doesn't like bluffing because he's generally hesitant to make the intuitive play. Being ready to make the intuitive play is a major part of selling a bluff. Your opponent must believe that you are capable of making an emotional or intuitive play in order to buy into it. I've talked a lot about making the intuitive play with Philip uh, Schoeniger, is that how you say it? When he was still around, and he was a major proponent of it. Which is why I would argue was a major reason he never went to time and was so feared because he was so hard to read. Yeah, this is a really interesting point, and I feel like there's a lot to unpack here. So I'm going to actually say this is closer to correct than I'm willing to be, but I actually don't even know if that's necessarily like a, like a good or a bad thing. Like labeling with good or bad is probably neither here or there. One of the things that I find myself always running in, into issues with is like when I'm making a play, I think just like the nature of the way like the Miracles deck will play out, right? You're always trying to play reactively you're always trying to answer what your opponent is doing right they play delver you play plow kind of deal they play liliana you hopefully have like the spell pierce for it or something what, what, what bothers me usually when i'm playing magic is like i always try to think about how things go wrong and more often than not i find myself going too deep into like how things can go wrong you know what i mean it's just uh, imagine like um you know like a decision point and, like you have to make a tree out of all the disordered decisions lines you can take and like the possible outcomes and consequences and so i try to go all the way down to the lowest level possible doing this i can beat spell pierce i can beat stifle i can beat a daze but if they have a forcible on top of that can't beat that all right and then go down another line all right I can beat Spell Pierce, Stifle, Lightning Bolt, but I can't beat Days if they have the Lightning Bolt or whatever it is. You look at all the different sorts of combinations and things like that. And to sort of fulfill one of those timelines, I usually play in like a super strange or, for example, a lot of the time, what's the intuitive play? Your, your opponent plays a Delver, you either sometimes take the hit or whatever, or wait for it to flip and then when they attack, then you plow it, right? I play so aggressively sometimes, or sometimes I guess maybe warped is even the right word. I'll just plow it in my main phase and pass the turn. And that is not necessarily always the, well, I mean, there are reasons behind, you know, making those kinds of plays, but I will agree that it is not the most intuitive play. So I'm just scared of things that could go wrong. And so I kind of just pull out my AK and just, you know, Gatling Gunda, <laughs> making panic decisions and things like that. But I don't actually think they're that bad decisions. Like there's no real downside to it sometimes. And so then when it comes to bluffing, that's where I think not being able to make the intuitive play for bluffing, you have to go in from the very beginning or like many, 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 many turns beforehand. You need to go in with a story that you're trying to paint, given the cards in your hand, the context of the situation, what your opponent's playing, that sort of thing, right? So for that reason, as the texture of the game changes, every turn as my opponents you know will play more threats and you know sculpt their own hands i think it's hard for me to set up consistent story because i'm playing reactively right i'm playing to the story that my opponent is setting up trying to you know decrypt whatever message they're sending and stabilize that way if that makes sense absolutely not but i think that there is a lot to unpack there i sort of know what you're trying to say anurag you're trying to address how you think about a game. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. You're sort of bringing it round circle to how that affects bluffing. You're, you're saying that you're not focused on that part of the game. You're trying to say you're, you're constantly trying to mitigate a variety of worst or bad case scenarios. So 
you're making what ends up being a more conservative place. I guess part of your thesis here would be that bluffing, in your opinion, often introduces some amount of risk to lines and you're you're constantly trying to go for the lowest risk play as a reactive That's step. part of it, yeah. I, I, I can see what you're saying given that I've watched you play a lot online and I know this is how you think through lines. And that's also a benefit of you streaming as people are able to hear you talking about how you're thinking about scenarios, which is why it's cool to watch somebody who's played a deck a lot talk through all of their plays. Should we dive into our first topic of the night? It sounds good. Brian, this is, like I mentioned at the very beginning of the cast, something that is near and dear to your heart, and that is, dun, 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 the state of combo in Legacy. Everybody already knows this, but Brian is so excited to talk about this. Literally right shaking right now. Yeah, he is. He is. He's beaming. So we'll all have some things to add here, but this episode is certainly Brian's baby, if you will. And I'm excited to talk about it. So let's. let's so section it. one is combo poorly positioned. So when we wrote down this topic, I had not won the challenge yet, and in general, a lot of storm players online were pretty low on storm combo. But combo in general, mainly due to force of negation, seeing a uptick in play. But also, if you look back at the previous format with Narset, Parter Avails, and Karn the Great Creator, Storm just was not in a viable place in the metagame. If you played it, you knew that you weren't going to do well, and you kind of just chalked it up. So when we chose the topic, it was kind of there. That said, I do think in both the current metagame and the previous metagame, Golgari Depths was a very good choice because it did not care about any of these cards, Force of Negation, Karn, or Narset. So it's part of the reason I think that you see... Tom, who is Negator77, Tom Hep is his full, full name, do very well over the last three months. And I still think that these uh, black-green depth decks are a very good choice. But recently, we've seen a metagame shift, and that is due to Renin6 entering the metagame. And what it's done is it's turned all these decks that were pseudo-prison decks and sort of morphed them into a more mid-range deck so they can combat the other mid-range decks. And what's happened is Maverick has come back. So when Maverick came back, a bunch of people decided they wanted to play Elves again. And when a bunch of people played Elves, that left Storm back in a good position in the metagame. And I was pretty fortunate to be someone casting Rite of Flames on that day. You guys have any thoughts on uh, what I've said so far? Yes, my first thought as we're talking about this is when you bring up Golgiri Depths, immediately think about what is combo in Legacy. So you have this deck that combines two cards together to make a 20-20 flying indestructible creature and try to kill your opponent in one turn. Yes, in, in a void, that does sound like a combo deck. But then there's these other decks, like what you're playing, Bryant, what you won the challenge with, which builds up a lot of mana and storm count and ends up killing somebody with the tendrils or empty the warrens. Totally different from this two-card combo depths deck, but still falling into this umbrella category of legacy combo that we're trying to identify how it is positioned. And I would argue generally, before we continue to dive into this and talk in more detail, that often in Legacy we see certain types of combo decks that attack on entirely different axes from other combo decks be very well positioned, while those other combo decks are very poorly positioned. And in general, I think we're, we're saying a couple things in this episode, right? We're saying that combo all combo decks as a whole, if you were to aggregate them together and 
and just look at all combo decks or potentially have are are not as great or were not as great at that at that time a couple weeks ago. But then also maybe we'll dive it into specific combo decks as well, and you'll talk about what you're discussing now. You do well with a Rite of Flame deck. Well, what's the difference between that and a Cabal Ritual deck, right? I mean, those are both two Storm decks that I think we're saying, and a large portion of the community is realizing, are positioned very differently than one another against large portions of Yeah, I also want to point out, it's not just red and six there, right, Brian? Because a while ago you mentioned that you as a Storm player, you were happy about cards like Red Horde Arcanist because people were just tapping out on turn two more often to play a 1-3 that did nothing you know, to the board, and then they would just die the next turn kind of deal. So you could definitely see more than just that. The state of like a 1-3 doesn't actually kill you as fast as like a 3-2, for example, that kind of deal. Like the whole Dark Confidant versus Arcanist conversation we had a long time ago. The meta is definitely heading in a certain direction. And whether or not combo benefits from that, I guess, is something we want to... We'll be talking about that. So let's let's dive in. So we have a couple more notes on uh, positioning before we get to our next section. And I think one of my thesis for this entire episode is that I think speed means a lot in the metagame right now. So if Maverick is one of the most popular decks in the format, you need to be able to win somewhat consistently before turn two. And even a high percentage of the amount of time on turn one, if you're going to be beating these Maverick decks, because you want to be able to win the game before Gaddictique or Thalia Guardian of Thraben hits the table. So let's look at Ant, a deck that Wilson has love for in his heart. He's played it to a Star City Invitational Top 8. So I know that Wilson is a big fan of casting Cabal Ritual. But in the current metagame, you're looking at beating Thalia, Gaddic Teague, and playing all of your cantrips before Narset hits the table on turn 3. But one of the issues with that is Ant is currently constructed to be playing 12 cantrips that all cost 1 mana due to the banding of Gitaxian Probe. So how often are you finding your 4 of Infernal Tutors or your 1 of Dark Petition or in Wilson's case Grim Tutor? Wink wink, nudge nudge. You have to spend time doing these things, and I think with Ant not being very threat-dense, but also playing more cards that aren't actually haymakers, they're sort of filler cards like Preordain, you spend more time, which makes you lose percentage points in matchups like Maverick, or you're a little bit too slow against Miracles, because Miracles has gotten to the point where you, it's so difficult to go over them unless you're playing something like Cloudpost, because its late game is so incredible now due to cards like Accumulated Knowledge. So in general, I don't think that cards like Reign of Filth should be played at the moment. Reign of Filth is traditionally good in really slow metagames, and we're just not there. So, Wilson? Yes. My larger theory behind Ant is that it was extremely good in a time where people did not respect it enough, largely because I think a, a very small number of people actually played it very well, and therefore people didn't really need to. So the metagame often reacts in, in ways that it should react, and you really didn't have to respect Ant tremendously if you weren't playing against one of the few players who were, who were playing it well at the time. But since that era, and largely also because of Magic Online and people playing a lot of Ant during various cycles, seasons, if you will, I think that not only is it the printing of cards that have changed, but people have built their decks in ways that understand how to fight a deck like Ant. Ant was always fantastic at outgrinding blue decks and even grindy decks. And I loved Ant in an era where people were playing Delver decks and always thought that they should be favored against you and they never actually were. That's when I felt like Ant had its, its biggest advantage. Even against Miracles in the days of Countertop, I would generally do pretty well with Ant before I think people understood really how they needed to be 
fighting against uh, Ant in that matchup. But I think as a community, people really started to understand and figure out how they should be combating Ant, developed a, a respect for it. And then we also increased the number of Chalice decks and, and decks like that in the format. I think we went, we went through a time where Chalice decks were pegged, quote, ape decks, if you will. People didn't really respect them very much. And then they became essentially tier one for a little while. And now a lot of at least decent players will be playing Chalice decks, and they're generally more accepted and respected in the community. And I think you see them a lot more. And for that reason, when you add in decks like Death and Taxes, Maverick, the Chalice is running around, new cards like Narset being printed, there's a lot of angles that attack Ant, and you can't just play against these old-school blue decks with a lot of soft permission that are going into the mid or late game anyway. I have three things that I want to say. One other deck that comes to my mind um, in terms of people have sort of learned how to play against it uh, is, is the Lands deck. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, Dave Long was just absolutely tearing up the SCG circuit. I mean, a lot of stuff has gone on since then, but, you know, Lands is a very... I haven't seen it a lot online, and I haven't seen it a lot in paper. There are just like a couple people I know by name now that would be playing the deck. And I think that might also just be the same thing that goes for Storm, right, Wilson? So you're saying that people would not really respect Storm as a deck because there were so few people that played it really well. And that's kind of the boat that I used to be in, where I I could count on my hand like a number of people that I would go into a Grand Prix room and say, like, are they playing in this event? No? Okay, cool. I just don't care about this deck then. Um, that kind of deal. Now it's, it's a lot harder because just on Magic Online, anyone could be playing anything. And a lot of this information is just so much more freely available. That's a great example, by the way. I was a little cheap going, but I do want to say lands did the almost the exact same thing as ant so i yeah. i agree with that the saying. second thing is and this is going back to what bryant was saying earlier right regarding maverick there's one concept that i learned about early on when i was just getting into legacy and just magic in general right the, the concept of the, the the critical turn especially like in a fair versus unfair matchup i guess it goes from both sides hearing the way that you're thinking about the matchup too but usually when i would be playing miracles or something like that i'd be like all right this is what i need to do in my match i need to draw a bunch of counters and to get those, I play my ponders and brainstorms, but obviously the question is, when can I play it, right? When am I able to actually tap out on turns to, to resolve a threat or to dig for another piece of hate or something like that? For example, against Sneak and Show, right? I would say that the critical turn that they actually deploy their combo would either be, you know, turns two, three, or four, somewhere within that range. So especially during that time frame, I'm a little bit uh, more cautious. And when I say it's the, that's when they deploy their combos because they've got acceleration or you know, just like the actual CMC of the cards of show and tell and sneak attack, that's the critical turn. So I guess thinking about it from the other perspective, Brian, you're saying, you know, you need to be able to combo off on turns zero, one, or two before your opponent is able to get the... CMC2 hate bear into play to slow you down kind of deal, which is really interesting. And the third thing I had in mind was it's just kind of interesting to keep track of the what the critical turn is from the combo side of things. For example, like you want to be able to play maybe duress on the draw instead of a ponder against you know miracles because of the nature of counterbalance and the matchup kind of deal. So Wilson mentioned Maverick. I think he did. Or no, he was mentioning Chalice decks not being respected yes. and now more people are playing Chalice. That's what it was. So I said Maverick, uh, too, Maverick and Death and Texas have recently picked up their Chalice of the Void count in the sideboard because what it allows is for these mid-range players to play a Chalice on zero, which dramatically increases the likelihood that they will live until turn two. And I think something that not a lot of players are respecting because 
the way that a lot of ant cyborgs are built is they're playing cards like Fatal Push or Hercules Recall. And while these cards are very good because they do kill Thalia or Getatique flat out, and Hercules Recall is amazing against decks like uh, Eldrazi Stompy, the issue is that they're not very good against Maverick. And when you're building a cyborg, I personally like more diverse cards that can come in in several matchups. And when you have a Fatal Push in your hand, it looks really dumb when your opponent plays a Chalice or Zero, just praying to have one more turn. So in those sort of scenarios, I prefer a card like Chain of Vapor, even though it doesn't permanently answer Gattatigue. And I think that these are the small adjustments that are okay. Because later on, I talk about how people swap one card and expect a big difference. I think that these are smaller metagame shifts that are more important than some may realize. Yeah, I kind of use the same principle with de- designing my sideboard for Miracles, the second reference to Philip Schoeniger. That's That was his sort of philosophy too, is that you want to have a bunch of like very widely applicable 50-50-51-49% cards, or maybe maybe a little bit more than that in the sideboard. But like because Legacy is just so wide open, it's one large LGS, you can play against anything, right? And so you want to have tools that can go into all, all those sort of matchups. So I kind of see the, the Chain of Vapor sort of fitting in to that sort of theory. So I do have one counterpoint. And I mean, I'm arguing against myself here, which is kind of funny. But this is because we're coming right out of the Vancouver Mulligan. But going into the London, I still have this philosophy, but that might change six months from now when we have six months of data testing because haymakers like Hercules Recall, Rest in Peace, Arcane Lab, no one's going to play Arcane Lab, but you get the idea that they're dedicated hate. Those might be better down the road. Oh, I've seen Arcane Labs. Don't, don't jinx Rule of law, you can't it. read Elemental Blastic. Come on. Anyway, so the next deck was Sneak and Show. This is actually one of the few decks that I don't think should speed up. I think Ant needs to speed up if it's going to continue to be competitive. Sneak and Show, I think, is already an appropriate speed for what the deck does. But I think if it's going to beat these Maverick decks and all these other mid-range decks, I think Omniscience should probably see an uptick. And maybe even the Cunning Wishlist. Because I know that's what JPA was having a little bit of success with when he went on his tear. But instead of two Omniscience, I would say three, possibly even four if Maverick becomes a tier one deck. Wait, just to clarify, what is your actual position on Sneaking Show? Is it poorly positioned or not? I don't think it's very very well positioned. Maverick tends to beat it up if it doesn't draw the Omniscience. But they also have Knight of Autumn to put into play on like Death and Taxes to destroy the Omniscience. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I think Sneak and Show is probably one of the more well-positioned combo decks relative to the other combo decks, but if you look at JPS lists from, sorry, John, Jonathan Angulescu's lists from now and a while back, right, they're, they barely changed, right? So I don't, I don't particularly see any changes to accommodate for Narset outside of the, or even Karn, for example, outside of the, you're dead on turn three or four kind of deal. Interesting. From my external, my outward experience, perspective here not having played it nearly as much as you guys lately i would think the sneak and show or just show and tell in general even with omniscience and i agree with bryant that i think omniscience as a card is better positioned now than it was one month ago that's probably what you want to be doing but the deck in general doesn't seem that great maybe i'm overvaluing narset's impact on the meta but i think that's pretty brutal i think that a lot of these more effective, grindier blue cards do better against show-and-tell decks than any of the other combo decks because show-and-tell, once it goes for some sort of early-to-mid-game combo, it has this sort of rebuild element that is what makes the deck one of the deck's strengths. But some of that is mitigated when the, the other fair decks have a lot of these tools that are generating a little bit more card advantage now 
and uh, have an effect, like for example, the static on Narset to, to stop a lot of that. If, if I'm fatty cheating, I would want to maybe check out a reanimator deck before I sleeved up show and tell. It's funny you mentioned that. Reanimator is our next deck that we will discuss. Hey, Brian, can I ask you a question? Of course, Anurag. Do you ever view tests as sort of a control deck? I do not. I know that some Storm players often like to pretend that they're the control deck against blue decks. I think that's... I want to choose my words wisely here. I think it's a misconception that people have from the top era. Because people were playing Crossing Grips and Abrupt Decays and Fluster Storms. And there was these massive games between Ant versus Miracles that are larger than Legend now. Where it's turn 13 and I cast my Crossing Grip on your top. But you secretly put a Mentor there. And like all that stuff. But like, oh my god, he had the Tendrils floating on top the entire time or whatever. Like these sort of things. They get built up so that way people remember them to be this much greater thing than they actually were. So nowadays when people are trying to fight Miracles, they think about that. And that's how they want to build their decks with two Past and Flames. In this era where decks are so much faster, and if you want to be faster, you shouldn't be playing all these grindy cards like Passing... Well, you could play a Passing Flames, but I don't think you should be playing multiple Passing Flames and Reign of Filth and things like that. If the meta's fast, you should be fast, and if the meta's slow, it's fine to be playing those cards. The reason I'm asking is because exactly what you're saying, right? It feels like when I battle with like contemporary versions of Ad Nauseam Tendrils as Miracles, that they're always trying to play the control role. Abrupt Decay, your counterbalance, kind of deal. You can't really answer that. Duress to like strategically navigate the matchup kind of deal. And in, in my mind, you know, if Storm is trying to play like as a control deck, Karn and Narset are both cards that are kind of hard to control, right? I guess Abrupt Decay is a thing, but... Your your answers have to be so much more, I guess, bland. Is that is that fair? Is that I don't know. Bland, bland bland's not really a good word. But how do, how, do, how do you handle Karn outside of like Chain of Vapor? Abrupt Decay doesn't hit it. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean. Like your options are suddenly much more limited. And when when options become limited, it feels like a they're they're not as good. Maybe no, not a they're okay. They they don't feel as good because limited options you can always. Well, it's easier to take advantage of it, I guess, if that's what I'm trying to say. The problem here is that all of these decks are attacking from various angles and axes. So something like Karn is a colorless planeswalker, whereas you you used to just have to worry about things like thorns and chalices and something like a Hercules recall by itself. You just palm your copies and can answer it. I guess Miracles specifically, though, I think it's worth pointing out that this whole control the countertop game plan thing, even though Bryant may come across as a tad bit biased against that ever working, uh, it's not as effective, primarily also because Miracles has re- relies much more heavily on actual card advantage as opposed to virtual card advantage through card selection. Whereas when Sensei's Divining Top wasn't actually drawing you cards, it was making you draw a very good card every single time you would draw a card, right? And there are different ways of fighting that type of strategy. So now if you just try to cast discard spells, go into late game with cantrips, and eventually pass in flames after working your way through some counter magic, that's much worse when your opponent is recalling for three with with an accumulated knowledge in the late game, or slamming a Narset and getting essentially two impulses off of it while killing all your cantrips. I think that those cards and that miracle strategy is much more damaging against the long game of a storm deck. I like those thoughts. And that's where my third point ends. So the third uh, deck that we wanted to mention was reanimator. So 
being faster is i mean anyone who knows me knows i like my combo decks fast but i think when decks like maverick are popular you actually should be fast and that is not a biased opinion that is just what i believe to be true i guess you could call it biased i don't know but uh <laughs> it yeah, sounds like a bias i realized what i said was wrong i was trying to correct myself but reanimator is already super fast so if you're trying to beat a deck like maverick how do you do that because you typically play four gristlebrand four chancellor of the annex and then you have like two one of targets that are usually your um i'm blanking on the tide spout tyrant and what's the white black creature ashen rider ashen rider so these are all fine but i think if you want to beat maverick you usually need something that will provide hexproof so this is where you'll see our type of endurance out of the board but it's not super popular anymore and i think part of the reason why is that it gets chump blocked for days like you play that against Maverick and they're like, okay, it's a six, five or a five, six. They play Knight of the Royal Query on turn two or turn three. And all of a sudden your, your reanimated target is, you know, not very good anymore. So maybe instead of running something like that, you would do a Inkwell Leviathan because it's a seven, 10 that can't be hit by source of plowshares. Or this is something that I like that's really spicy, but maybe not as good. I've never actually played it. In theory, it's good because it gets around graveyard hate. Silumgar, the Drifting Death. Because you can Dark Ritual it into play. It's four blue and a black, so it's six mana total. It's a 3-7 Hexproof with flying. And whenever a dragon creature you control attacks, defending creatures players get minus one, minus one. So it's going to kill all those Noble Hierarchs, the Scrib Sprites, uh, Mother of Runes, Thalias, Dryad Arbors. All that stuff just dies. This is a card that when I want to kill several hours of, of mental time when i'm bored on a plane or something thinking about cube i this this card drifts across my demir thoughts and i realize that it's probably not a top 10 demir card but yeah it's just it's just very cool this this type of card is it's hard to answer and, and does a lot of fun things against the the x1 hate stuff it's certainly spicy i don't know how good it is i just think that it's probably worth testing at some point Testing or testing? Testing. Ding! For all three of these decks so far, what what sort of strikes out to me is that it just feels like there's more permanent-based answers than there were before. Answers or hate? So coming from your perspective as the control player, are you saying there's more permanent-based hate for combo decks than before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. So one of the things that Wizard said about a year ago is that they were going to start printing more answers. And a lot of combo players were like, yes, more answers for permanent-based hate. But it was the other way around. <laughs> it was more permanent-based hate for combo <laughs> decks. Yeah, and it hasn't quite gone the way that we had hoped. We've gotten cards like a Braid that aren't super good. What's that new card they printed out? They printed a new card. It was called, uh, it's like the Green Sun Zenithable Oof or something, Oofy or something like that. Collector Oof. That card is a perfect example of the kind of answer. Yeah, like a tutorable null rod seems dangerous. I'll be honest. I've had a couple of Maverick players and Elves players green for Sun Zenith for that instead of Gaddictig, and then I end up killing them. So if that's what they're doing, I'm fine with it. I play a lot of artifacts in my deck too. All right, so our second section, so we don't drag this on for too long. If combo is poorly positioned, if it is at all, and new cards are rarely printed for it, what do you do? So a few options come to mind for me. You continue to play the same list with small adjustments, hoping to do less poorly and understand that your deck is not well positioned. So this could be something like the Chain of Vapor aspect that we covered before, like small adjustments that don't really matter. Maybe in some metagames you'll play two Dark Petitions and one Pass in Flames. 
if you're trying to be a little bit faster um or maybe you'll play grim tutor if you're wilson hunter and you just happen to buy a grim tutor in 1997 and you still want to play it nowadays your second option is to switch decks and i get it this sucks what if for some reason this combo deck is your baby you don't want to give it up it hurts but maybe playing something like maverick or these new four color dalber decks would be a refreshing change for you and the third one is something that i did a couple years ago so i played tes through thick and thin no matter what it's just what i do i keep track of all my data i don't lie about anything i know when my deck sucks i'm not trying to convince anyone else otherwise so with talking to friends about pop quiz when did it suck last I actually think uh, it was very good during the end of the Grixis Delver era with Death Ray Shaman and Probe. I know metagame results would argue with, uh, would disagree with that, but both Anthony Laverde and I did very, very well. It's just that there wasn't a number of us playing the deck. Wait, so when did it suck? Like? I think that it was truly awful at the end of the Miracles era. Like, I was lost. I couldn't figure out what to do. My win percentage was low 50s. Like, I just didn't know how to solve that metagame at all. And that was back when, like, Checkpile had, like, two spell snares and two counter spells, too, right? Four Snapcaster Mages, like, way back. Yeah. All right, continue. Yeah, change in perspective. So I was talking to some friends, and they had talked, they were, at the time, they were discussing how Storm cards aren't really printed. So it's often said, like, the last Storm cards that were printed were Passing Flames and Dark Petition, and Dark Petition was, like, M15. Am I wrong on that? Is it Origins? You're right. It is Origins. That is correct. But these are like the last two cards that were printed. But I think that's not necessarily true. Uh, So at the time, I had been in group chats with other Legacy specialists, and I had been getting views on their decks. And I think that's something that really opened up my eyes because I had realized how other people were looking at their decks, and it made me look at my deck in a different way. And it was, what are cards that were previously dismissed? for my deck that might actually be playable and we're never really given it on a shot. So at the time I had been wanting to cut green from the Epic Storm because Miracles was down to two counterbalance and I didn't really feel like Abrupt Decay was good in my deck anymore. Like I'm a 13 land deck. I don't want to have to fetch for Bayou in order to bounce or destroy a permanent. It's just not really what I'm interested in. So I started testing Pure Grixis list, but I really wanted to keep Xanid Swarm. So I packed a Hope of Gearper. And Hope of Gearper is a colorless Xanid Swarm effectively, but it's only good for one turn. And its effect lasts longer than a turn, so it's really good with Empty the Warrens, because if you empty, your opponent can't untap and Terminus or Toxic Deluge you. I was looking at Hope of Gearper, and I was testing it, and people immediately gave me bad feedback, saying that it was a strictly worse Xanid, the card sucks, it loses to Norod, how could I possibly play, possibly be playing a card this bad? And they're like, a, they just bounce it with Caracas. All these things that people were saying, but they hadn't ever really tested it. So if they had tested it, they would realize like, who the hell other than Death and Taxes is playing Caracas? No Rod's sometimes a one of Indelver boards. And you're not really boarding it in against Delver. It's really for like the sneak and shows and the miracle decks of the world. And so I started testing it. And when I was testing, I was pleasantly surprised. And with testing, it, I was like, hey. I'm now up to 15 artifacts in my deck. I wonder if that's enough for Mox Opal. Because Mox Opal is a very degenerate card. And the Storm players had never really tried it. And I was like, well, this could, in theory, this is on the power level of Lotus Petal or even Lion's Eye Diamond. What if this is a Storm card? 
So I started testing it and I tried some wonky lists. And recently I've gone back to Mox Opal due to Defense Grid being another artifact for turning it on. And I just think that sometimes people aren't evaluating everything they could be. And currently, I think a card like, uh, I don't know what the first half of the name is, but the Astrolabe card that's in Anurag's deck, like that's a potential card to turn on Mox Opal as well. But you would have to fetch for snow-covered uh, swamps. That is probably the most poetic thing you've ever said to me, and I resonate with that so much. Because, I mean, this is coming from the guy who literally played Brightling for like multiple months because I couldn't figure out how to beat Delver, right? This is coming from the guy who's got red and six in his Miracles deck. I think you should just dab right now. Dab on the haters. Dab on the haters. No, do it right now. I don't do that. All right. Well, Brian, Brian did not. Brian did not dab on the haters. But I, I like, I like that. I like being open minded. I, I think it's just not you. No one can say being open minded is a bad thing. Open minded is a bad. Thing. I'm glad you actually tried it out because I think the the end results here, what you have done with tests, like its current iteration. God, hope a gear pours a pain in the ass. All right, continue. If you look at where I am now compared to where I was at the end of the Miracles era, I thought that the hybrid decks were the future of TES. I thought at some point Ant and TES would merge, and I no longer believe that to be true. I think that TES has been a lot more successful leaning into its strengths, which is actually a bullet I wrote down below, but or actually it's above, but leaning into your strengths and accepting your weaknesses. Like TES isn't a strong late game deck, so having a card like Past and Flames on my board, even before Echo of Aeons was printed, I had already cut Past and Flames. I was like, my deck is not a good Past and Flames deck. Instead of playing this tertiary engine that I use one in every 60 matches, I'm just going to cut it and have a higher win percentage if I can play a, a card that has a higher impact in more games and just accept the games where I can't Past and Flames or I'll find another way. Like I'll play my avenues differently so I never get backed into an area where I need Past and Flames. So play into your strengths, and this is why I've played cards like Mox Opal. Uh, and then something else I wanted to mention was cards that I think that should probably be reevaluated at some point that might not be good right now. Mastermind's Acquisition, it's a four-mana sideboard tutor or main deck tutor. Uh, it's two black-black, and it gets a card out of your sideboard or out of your main deck. It was immediately dismissed by a lot of the Ant community. And TS players didn't really discuss it because we have Burning Wish, but I think this card has a lot of potential. I've seen it in some Omni uh, show lists, the blue-black one. I know that uh, Leger, MTGO user, was playing it for a little bit. I think that this card is okay enough. It's on the same power level as Grim Tutor. That's what I have to say about that. Belasa Citadel is clearly very broken. Uh, if Top was still in the format, I'd probably be playing it. I know that's what I'm actually doing in Vintage. Uh, Bosses sit it all with three tops, so I can just pay one life, draw the top card if I can't cast it for free. And then I think uh, a lot of the Ant community has given up on Echo of Aeons, but that card is extremely degenerate. I just think that it's like one card away from being its own deck. Like Some people are trying to just the four of main deck, Echo deck. It seems like something's lacking there, but I'm not an expert on that, so I'll shut my mouth on that for now i like the sort of approach that you're taking here i think deck building is especially when it's like with with one deck over a large period of time i think is is actually quite a very difficult task because the pace of legacy is kind of glacial compared to the other formats that being said it has sped up a decent bit 
you know, just because of like the large number of cards that have been injected in the format. But, but in, in, in terms of like looking at a deck and thinking about it from like a core critical level, like what am I trying to do? How am I doing it? And what is the best way to continue doing this? You know, when you, in, in, in the context of new cards, a lot to, yeah, I'll say it, there's a lot to unpack. Yes. Choice in one episode. That's why like reaching out of, especially when it's when like new cards come out, right? Like reaching out of your comfort zone and trying new things. It takes a little bit of guts. I like that. Maybe this is me just like looking at myself and patting myself on the shoulder, but like a card like Renin Six, Wilson Hunter, would you have ever thought of putting that in a Terminus deck? Probably not, right? Well, maybe, maybe like a 1% chance. I will say that if I heard that you were playing it, I would expect it to be in a deck with Terminus. Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. I'll take that. To be fair, I I do think that Wilson mentioned it in our uh, preview episode for the set. I think Wilson immediately saw it in, as a home in Maverick. And I think he was probably one of the first few people to see it. We, I could be wrong on that, but in my eyes, he gets credit for seeing Ren and Six in Maverick. I just get credit for the card. I get credit every single time on Rodcast that card. Oh I my. <laughs> That's certainly aggressive. Like store credit or uh, any real value in this credit, I guess I should ask. Cardboard live bucks. Nice. Even a card like Ren and Six and Miracles, like, like Arkham's Astrolab. So long as the card is like, there are reasons to try it out. And this maybe go. This might go back to like the that what was that Goblin Guy discussion or something we had a long time ago when we when we were talking about like trying trying new cards out. I think if there are like enough good reasons to try a card out, it's worth it to test it. Running the same seventy five into a brick wall over and over and over again has severe diminishing returns after a certain point. And I mean, who knows? You might accidentally stumble onto the next Mox Opal or the next whatever. Like I don't know. Yeah. I think the Arkham Astrolab, like that card is so good and it's seeing such little play outside of the four color Dead of Winter deck. And I guess like the four color Miracles deck that isn't really a thing. Sorry, Anurag, but No, don't worry. It's I'm I'm gonna eventually it's gonna become Unzi Pile watch. It'll be Strifo Pile, Unzi Pile, and then the rest of Legacy. We've never had a one mana artifact in the history of Legacy where it's just a one mana comes into play, draws a card. So there's a bunch of effects like Chromatic Star and Chromatic Sphere, but it's really two mana draw card, and then it filters. So I think that this card is very interesting because it could replace a card like Preordained while also turning on Mox Opal to make your deck faster. So it provides a little bit of consistency. Have you ever held up Wasteland, Flusterstorm, and Pyroblast all with the same land? It's a great feeling. Didn't uh, I think Jarvis told me that Jarvis Jarvis you I think I was told that Prophetic Prism had a top aided a Pro Tour at one point and this is just like a a free sorry it's it's a cheaper costed Prophetic Prism with a setback that's actually just free to accommodate um, especially since they printed Prismatic Vista so has upsides it's been good in testing so far it's good to look outside it's good to look outside the box yeah okay so section three. Actually, should we go back to Wilson's point where I uh, cut him off like a jackass? Anurag brought up Goblin Guide and Miracles and used that to make some sort of of point, which I felt like was not relevant to the Goblin Guide discussion. But my point was never that you should, you know, that there are these two hypotheticals where you can either test new things or keep playing the same thing over and over again. In my world, those are not the two options you have. You have the option to play literally any combination of cards in Legacy. 
And I'm saying, given the constraint of time and testing, you have to make decisions on testing cards that clearly maybe shouldn't go in a particular strategy. And if you would like to test them, you should be testing some new shell or deck to go with that card. So the example of Goblin Guided Miracles is that you can use your intuition and knowledge of the format to understand that you likely shouldn't be wasting your time testing Goblin Guided Miracles. And if there's a world that we live in where you think that that sort of aggression is good for whatever reason, you should probably be testing some deck that better utilizes Goblin Guide. So it's sort of like a general theory philosophy discussion. That's that's my only point. Also, hot take, Astrolab is a horrendous card and does absolutely nothing and nobody should be playing it Legacy. But we can go on to the next. Wilson is dumb. Uh, so section two, uh, we've already said uh, small changes, switch decks, change in perspective. The last bullet that we have is look at the ban list. This is a thought that I've had for quite some time. So instead of like new cards aren't really printed for Storm that often, in, or if they are, sometimes they're overlooked. Well, let's look at the past. Let's look at cards that may have been deemed unworthy or too powerful. So, but before we do that, let's uh, take a step back and let's look on our views on how to handle or manage the ban and restricted list. So I know that a lot of legacy players view the ban and restricted list as like, what does the format benefit from X card being legal? I personally believe that the banned and restricted list should be curated. I don't think any card should go on the ban list and just stay there forever. I think that once the format has moved past that card being too good, it should come off. Thoughts? Well, I think the 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 BNR list should just be something that is only there like by necessity, right? If there is a card that is basically just destroying the format, making it unplayable or unfun, whatever it is, just... In that sort of situation is when you say, hey, let's let's draw the line here. You know, the strategy is too oppressive. Treasure Cruise is too good. Death by Shaman is too good. Uh, get the stuff out of here. That makes sense. But 10 years down the line, like, if you haven't really reevaluated the impact of these cards in the current format, I think that's unfair to the cards. And I think that's, honestly, that's just negligence. I also think that there's some joy for some people because like a competitive player might not care about a card like Time Spiral. Uh, however, our good friend Marcus that we mentioned earlier, I do think he is competitive. I probably word- worded this incorrectly, but he loves casting High Tide into Time Spiral. If he could do that all day, I bet he would, you know, have a party or something. But Marcus loves casting Time Spiral. Anurak, how much does that impact your life? I'd imagine very little. I can't even, yeah, no, I can't even fathom an answer here. So if some elves player wants to play Earthcraft, let them. Like, it's not going to be something that ruins the format. Like, why is it still on the ban list? And these are the sort of things that we're going to discuss, because if it brings joy to one person's life, I think it's worth taking it off the ban list if it's fine for the format. Because cards like High Tide, Earthcraft, like, they're not power level strong, especially when one of my biggest issues with Legacy is that so many cards are on this ban list that are just worse than a turn one or turn two Gristlebrand, which is currently legal. And it makes no sense that some of these cards are banned while Gristlebrand runs free. Yeah, and to in an attempt to not just say the same thing as you guys, because I do share the same opinion, Bryant, as you as what you're describing. In the last couple of years of playing Legacy, I have tried to spend more of my energy on online and talking to people when I discuss the ban and restricted list to try to figure out what I think Wizards is going to do as opposed to what I think they should do. So while we will in the segment be talking about what we think 
they should do, I think it's worth considering what is probable just so that I just think that that's helpful for me in planning and and in and, and various uh, ele- elements of the format. So for example, the Death Rite Shaman format, for everybody went back and forth for so long on what they should do, you know, pros, cons, whatever. And it got to a point where for me, it was just helpful to, to estimate and guess like, well, do I think they're going to ban it? This really affects how I prepare for this GP. It affects, uh, you know, the cards that I pick up, all these different things. I really wanted to spend my energy on that. So that's just another angle I think we should talk about as we go through this is do we think that they are going to take certain cards off, for example, when we get to the card goblin recruiter, whether or not they should, are they, you know, there's cards like that. So I guess let's, let's, let's begin. Piggybacking on that. I do believe that wizards is always, or is more likely to always ban an enabler rather than a degenerate piece of a combo. So looking back on the survival, of the fittest days, people wanted Vengevine banned So that way they could continue to play survival of the fittest, but that's not the way that Wizards views the ban and restricted list. They like banning the enabler, so that way the cards that they print in the future aren't restricted to survival of the fittest and legacy. Not that they actually consider legacy, but this sort of mindset where they don't want to be restricted down the road due to some degenerate card in another format. Let me ask you a question, because I feel kind of... I have an interesting take on this, and uh, here's my take. Ready? Do you think Sensei's Divining Top should have been banned? Me personally? Yeah, amongst other options. I mean, I agree Miracles needed to be tamed back in the day. Would you have done it the way Wizards did it? I was pro-top band. I tried to not be too vocal because I had some very good friends at the time that were very anti-ban. I saw people saying that Terminus should have been banned, and that was the real issue. To me, it comes down to something I was going to mention under Goblin Recruiter, which is time. I played a lot of competitive events during the heyday of Miracles and watching inexperienced players spin their tops over and over and over again because they can't remember the top three cards of their deck became an issue because at Eternal Weekend two years ago, or maybe it was three years ago at this point, I was sitting there in between rounds. Every round was 45 minutes over time because Miracles players. Okay, that's interesting. I guess my take on the card is I, or the situation is I probably would not have done it the way the Wizards did it. Um, I think I would have actually gone after something like Terminus or Counterbalance just to see like what, what happens to the format in that sort of situation. Just because the impact of banning a card like top affected so many other decks and so many other things. And I guess I guess what I want to just like latch on is in terms of Legacy, which is a format that goes largely unregulated by Wizards. I feel like it'd be really cool if there was a way for like players to curate the ban list. I don't think that's a good idea. Within reason, no. I I think it may because for the most competitive format, or like I I get that like for time reasons you want to ban Sensei's Divining Top. That's fine. That makes sense. I don't know. There, like a lot of the cards that we're gonna see down here, right? Probably don't need to be on the list anymore. And like, do you really think Watsi's gonna invest the time in to confirm that it doesn't need to be banned? They've got so many other things on their agenda. They're just too busy. No. So like in that sort of sense, like it would be really cool if like the players could say like, hey, this is what we've got. You know, this is what we can show you. This card is not scary. It can come off the ban list. Or, you know, you could say like, hey, look, this is what we've got. This this card is what's really causing the problem. And, you know, or like even like probationary periods where you like try certain bit, like keeping the ban list flexible, I, I think is, is kind of what I'm trying to get at rather than like serious long-term bans. I mean, I don't know how much testing goes in there. I guess Gitaxian Probe Ban is is one ban that Watsi did that I was very impressed by and completely taken aback by and goes against a lot of the theory that I had on their stance for the ban list. So props to Watsi for that. But in general, I feel like 
people who play the game like day in day out grind and like have know the interactions know the power level and things like that it'd be cool if their opinion actually mattered so looking back they heavily hinted that they were going to ban gataxian probe if you read the bnr update from the banning before probe was banned they said that it was on the watch list and when i read that and i read the entire paragraph for why they were watching gataxian probe i was like crap i have to go buy japanese full of thought seizes so i started immediately saving money for japanese full of thought seizes and then by the time it was actually banned i had already had my set but uh we should actually dive into our final section of the night what cards are potentially okay to come off the bnr list to help these combo decks that may or may not be that well positioned at the moment so the first one i think we all agree on frantic search Honor, why don't you say your opinion first? All right, so much like a lot of these other cards that are much older than me, I have not actually played Frantic Search, but my actual opinion on this card is if this card got unbanned, I would not feel very threatened. So I kind of wanted to get unbanned just to see what would, you know, for like shits and giggles kind of deal. I just want to see like, would High Tide take over the format? Probably not. Yeah. Risk it. Let it go. I do want to point out that Anurag is not that much younger than, than anybody else on the show. But I agree with that. So my perspective here is that... Wait, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Excuse me? What? How old are you, Mr. Hunter? Oh, I don't think we're revealing that quite yet, are we? Do you, Okay, ethical question. Do, do you think the amount of hair on someone's head would be indicative of their age? Ethical question? It's just a yes or no. Is that ethics? The hair on their head. I'll let you think about that. We can talk about it some other day. But I just want to leave that lingering in your mind somewhere. Mine or the listeners? Yours. Mine. Okay, okay. I will will definitely think about that. But back to Frantic Search. And I hate to say this because of our Northern European listeners named Marcus. But I think that there are enough tools right now to properly fight High Tide in a manner that even Frantic Search High Tide would not be Tier 1, unfortunately that I I can't really think of any shell that would abuse Frantic Search on a level that would just totally turn the format on its head. I know Bryant maybe has a couple applications of the card, but in general, I think it would just be a combo tool. I think it would be used in the core of High Tide, and then apart from that, just be like a sort of a fringe playable combo card. So like Wilson and Anurag, I do think that High Tide could probably use a bone. Uh, It hasn't really received anything in quite some time. Maybe Mission Briefing. I thought that was a very good fit for that deck. Uh, But outside of that, it hasn't really gotten a whole lot. And most importantly, Frantic Search does not solve the Narsa issue for this deck. All that deck wants to do is draw cards, and Frantic Search doesn't do anything to stop that. What it does do is it potentially allows for some crazy turn two wins before Narsa hits the table. So maybe they high tide reset because now maybe they're back on the instant speed list instead of playing cards like time spiral frantic search untap with their two lands and start going off that way but it would require a very impressive streak of cards in order to get there uh but it, it's similar to cloud of fairies but actually playable so outside of the high tide decks i do think that it could possibly see play in two other shells the first being sneak and show it untaps a ancient tomb or city of traders and a volcanic island so that way on your turn two you can frantic search and see if you hit your missing combo piece for free before anything happens. So if you end up needing to leave open your counter mana, you're able to do so. Uh, It would likely compete with preordain for slots, but it's interesting in that sort of perspective. And Hey, this digs for two more deep. Uh, I get to keep my mana open, that sort of thing. 
And the last application would be these Aqua Veons decks. It provides another discard outlet that isn't Lion's Eye Diamond. But those decks want to be really, really fast, and I don't think they really want to be waiting for turn two or three in order to untap lands for Frantic Search. It definitely seems interesting in the Echo of Aeon's deck. It, I would not play it in a Sneak and Show deck personally. If I'm a blue deck playing against a Sneak and Show deck that casts a Frantic Search, I'm almost thrilled. It would be similar to a Sneak and Show player casting a Careful Study. You know, I'd be confused. I would think maybe there's some sort of reanimator angle going on here. Yeah, I just wouldn't be a fan of that. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can think of with regards to sneak att- sneaking show is like you get those hands sometimes where you like you've tried to combo off and you failed or something, and now you're just drawing off the top of your deck. But rather than the ponders and the show and tells, you're drawing into just like maybe more redundant fatties or pieces that you don't need. And like frantic search is like a zero mana tool to sort of accelerate the chugging through there. Could be useful, but that just doesn't even seem like necessary enough. Yeah, I I, I, I don't see it either. Uh, the next card that I wrote down is Goblin Recruiter. I know that Wilson disagrees with me on this, but uh, Wilson sucks. So, Anurag, why don't you start? So, once again, I have never actually cast this card. All I know is that it does something with Food Chain. Um, what was the reason they banned it? Like, time reasons or something? Is that true? So, it was banned when Legacy split from... When Type 1.5 split from Vintage, it was added onto the ban list. So the big decks at the time were Dragon, which ran Bizarre Baghdad, Workshops. So there was a Shops deck. They called it 710. There was Land Still. They had Mana Drain. And then the fourth pillar was Food Chain Goblins. So they wanted to ban one big card from each deck. And Goblin Recruiter was actually the card banned from the Goblin deck. So they felt like decks were a little bit too fast because this uh, goblin set could theoretically turn to someone if it had the perfect hand. What would the turn two look like? Uh, turn one lackey, you would swing, you would drop a goblin, and on turn two you would play your ancient tomb because the deck ran taiga. You would play a food chain, you would exile your lackey, play goblin recruiter, and then you would exile the goblin that you dropped to play a ringleader, and then you would win. Because you would stack your deck for every four cards, hit another ringleader until you revealed all the goblins in your deck and they all had haste or whatever. That's gruesome. And I would never, ever want anything like that to happen again. But it's on the power level of what Legacy is now, in my opinion. Like, that isn't anything worse than... Because think about it. That's a very similar engine to Storm where you need multiple moving pieces. Why is that any worse than someone just going into and reanimate? So... I have a different argument for this. Sure, if you're a purist and you believe that cards should only be banned for power level on here, maybe, uh, Bryant, would you ever play, do you think Shaharazad is a reasonable magic card to have in Legacy? So you're stealing my second point of this, but I will allow it. Uh, I do not think it's a reasonable card due to the time aspect. Right. Well, that's my entire point behind this card is I agree with you that I don't think that as a from a combo perspective it, it would necessarily break the format by any means, but it is by far more than any card that is currently legal in Legacy, just a ridiculous, time-consuming, and strange mechanic. There is no other card that allows you to all of a sudden look at the 60 cards in your deck and go through and set them all in, in, in a certain order, and I just think that that's... Uh, just not fun gameplay, and I think maybe as a more of a black and white younger fellow ten years ago, I would 
pick a side, maybe say power level only, stick with it and say who cares about all the other things. But particularly if anybody's taking the time constraints of things like Sensei's Divining Top into consideration, I just don't see a world in which Goblin Recruiter makes Legacy more fun. So I agree with you that the time aspect is why it's banned. And I think it's a little bit uh, hypocritical because I think it should likely be unbanned. But I think at the same time, if since he's dividing top is banned for time constraints, you realistically can't unban Goblin Recruiter. But I probably think it should be because what are the odds that these Goblin Recruiter decks like Food Chain Goblins are good enough for competitive play? And if they are, is one Goblin Recruiter per match or two Goblin Recruiters per match any worse than a Ross Merriam Brainstorm on camera? Well, the argument is a little circular in that if you're using the avoidance of the card because it's not even competitive enough to be a reason to unban the card, then it's just, you know, what are we even doing other than housekeeping a, a, a ban list to be as short as it possibly can? I would I would argue that just any chance that it's a playable card in a tournament and somebody is, is goblin recruiting, you know how degenerate the community is. And I say the community lovingly because we are the degenerates in this community. People would see a card like this become unbanned. I mean, for crying out loud, I sleeved up four horsemen as soon as I figured out what that deck did just because you love trolling people though. That is like, you, you gain joy from that. Like if you could make Anurag miserable for five hours a day by poking him, I think you'd do it. I would never use the word miserable. I make him happy in a way that is uncomfortable and maybe outside he looks miserable, but inside he is just beaming with glee, you know, but I do, I do want to get back to this. So I, I think the goblin recruiter would just be just a, a total time sink. And I don't know. I just don't want to see it. I'm writing this all down. This is all being documented and recorded for, for the future in case ever I needed a listener to maybe like come and save me in, in a moment of need. But yeah, actually, now that I think about it, like, especially now that cards like Force of Negation have been printed, this card doesn't seem as spooky. Force of, Force of Negation? Force of Negation does not counter, it doesn't counter Goblin Recruiter. It's a creature. No, but like for Food Chain, but it stops Food Chain, right? Oh, uh, for Food Chain, yeah. What? But it doesn't stop your opponent from going for their death for five minutes. Isn't that the effect that we need to stop? Well, I mean, like in terms of like power level, I, I don't. Earlier, you were trying to convince me that, you know, Goblin Recruiter isn't as, as, as scary as it used to be. And I. I wasn't sure, but now that I think about it, I have to. I think I agree. It's just, yeah. There's there's enough stuff that people can be doing. From none of us are judges, but I wonder what the maximum amount of time that would be reasonable that a judge would allow for a goblin recruiter pile would be. Right. Mm. Because like I know per match they tend to lean. I mean, there, there's nothing in the rules for this, but like they'll give a player a long brainstorm per match if it's like a crucial brainstorm in the game though they're willing to give them a little bit more time but if it's every single cart time they cast a brainstorm or ponder they're a little less lenient so i wonder how that would play into things yeah like what would, what would you do if you played two of these in one game right like you chew yourself well the second the second one is that's sort of a weird question right because why because you would never <laughs> stack your deck in order to draw another one yeah yeah and then do something totally different that would just be weird but yeah, i don't know but that's the next level thing. That's the thing about it, right? Maybe the first Goblin Recruiter, you're going next level because you actually have one in your Recruiter stack in case you need to change your strategy at a given moment. I don't know. You can go really deep on these on these Recruiters. <laughs> okay. So good taxi and probe. Anurag. The silence is intentional. 
All right, Wilson. I hate this card. I hate this card with a flaming, fiery passion. I think Phyrexian mana was a mistake. I think Phyrexian mana would draw a card attached to it as a mistake. I have. I think Phyrexian mana would draw a card and look at your opponent's at hand is even more of a mistake. Why? Who? How? What? And I'm so glad Watsy had the big brain knowledge. To, like I mentioned this earlier. This card was just... I, I think beyond the, the random synergies that it has with cards like Cabal Therapy and Young Pyromancer, it is just so unfun on turn zero for your opponent to pay two life look at your hand write it down and then you're just like well i mean i feel like everything i do now it's like it's not even it's not chess anymore it's more like i'm being hunted <laughs> i love that <laughs> yeah and it's just i don't know it just does not feel good at all to, to go through that motion so I'm, I'm gonna play the devil's advocate here if i'm a watsi employee and i'm thinking of new cards to print and we've previously made peak that was unplayable in limited and standard and everything but i think that peak is a super cool effect and we have this new set coming out and it involves phyrexian mana i can see why gitaxian probe was printed because maybe somebody was a huge fan of peak and they always felt like it needed a little bit more love the issue is that perhaps it was too good it's definitely too good but if you don't try to make things better the game gets stale and things are less enjoyable because there's less cards being introduced into other formats. Like I'd rather take more risks and then drop and then pull them back and then continually print boring cards. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know what? That's cool. I, res- I I'm okay with that. Like you want to try something crazy, go for it. I won't, I won't, I mean, I'll probably complain, but that's, that's what it, what it is. But like when it comes to, you know, banning the time to ban the card, like the card should go. And I'm glad that Gitaxian Probe is gone. In fact, I think that card was actually just subtly more powerful than Deathrite Shaman. Um, Before I go into my my real points, thought experiment here. Anurag, did you ever play Gitaxian Probe in Miracles regularly? What do you mean regularly? Like, no, I like I, I tried it in, Gita- in, in Miracles. I never stuck with... But you didn't like it, right? Uh, No, no. Yeah. In Miracles. How were you doing well with miracles when Gitaxian Probe was legal? Pre-top ban or post-top ban? Either one, both. I'd say pre-top ban, yes. Post-top ban, probably not as good. No, yeah. You're really hard on yourself. You've always you've been very good at miracles for the last few years. You're one of the top miracles players on the GP circuit and have a popular miracle stream. And I would argue that you never had uh, the desire to play this card even after testing it and it being free to cast right in your deck why did you not play this in miracles so i think the specific construct of miracles is uh you just can't afford to pay that much life there are situations where even casting the card for free once is too much especially given that during that time you know my biggest problem was a turn Two Pyromancer with a Deathrite Shaman swarming the board, you know, making a bunch of 1-1 tokens that would kill me in like three or four turns kind of deal. So the life loss was very, very relevant. And it, like when top was legal, right? Like I didn't really ever want to mess up the the top three of my library with a card like Gitaxian Probe. Uh, even with Mentor, like, like it's really good, but it was never needed. Right. Especially given that, you know, Counterbalance was a thing that was, you know, being played alongside the uh the sensei's divining top i guess after the ban like looking at my opponent's hand was nice but the loss of life definitely outweighed the sort of selection that's another thing too no selection 
like no card quality is a big deal. Huge downside. I think Anurag finally found the real reason to not play Gataxian Probe and Miracles. I think the life loss aspect is overrated. Like, I'm the ad nauseum deck, and I was playing four of them. No, 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 no. Believe believe me when I say in Miracles, the life loss, li- life loss aspect is not, because you really use your life as a, a resource. Sure. So let me go back. My original point, that this was an interesting exercise, because you talked about enough reasons why you didn't want to play this card in your tier one deck that you're doing very well with when the card was legal right so while i will go ahead and spoil it and say that i think that this card should be banned i am not as sledgehammery as many people in the community were about getaxian pro being so broken that it needs to be banned and i think that this is a good example of why is that there were a solid number of tier one decks and good players who never played the card and continue to do quite well and we had what some may not think is a healthy format, but if they don't think that, it's largely because of Deathrite Shaman. I, I, I think that Gitaxian Pro probably could be sticking around today, and there would be enough different decks in the format where it's, it's not just as a card taking over. Where I have a problem with Gitaxian Probe is what it does to the gaming experience. And in general, one of the qualities of Magic is the hidden information between players. And in order to reveal some of that information, there's usually a significant cost associated with a card, whether it's it often has to be some amount of mana, right? Like a Thought Seize is a great example of a tier one card that reveals hidden information. Gataxian Pro broke this key rule. It made it so that a lot of tier one decks in the format were exactly how you started the discussion, Anurag. You felt like you were being hunted from turn one. And even if you won those games, it felt like there's a total imbalance in how the game is being played. And it's just not, I, I don't think it's the way that the game of Magic, even in, in Legacy, is really meant to be played uh, in, in a way that's fun and interesting and interactive. So that's my reason why I like that it's banned and would like it to continue to be banned. But I'm not as high on the, the power level argument necessarily. I, I will also put out there real quick, I'd never, I don't know if I would consider Miracles like tier 1-1. One, one. Like the deck has a lot of flaws and i would call it like tier 1.15 okay well check do you think check pile was tier 1 during that deathright shaman probe era grixis control pile um does its perform i don't know i i was never i was never really a fan of that deck i think um it didn't do enough with abusing mana to be very good no MTG Goldfish had it as the second most popular deck during that era. Yeah, I think I think that's just that's like a function of volume more than anything else. Well, result, I mean, a lot of very good players were playing it. I think it did very well. You know, I guess we could go deep and talk about how good the deck was. But anyways, my point behind that is, even though the most played deck in the format did play both Probe and Deathrite Shaman, the second most played deck did not play uh, Gitaxian Probe. And, you know, really goes down to the homogenizing of the format, I really do think, centered around Deathrite Shaman. And um, Probe was a really great tool for a tempo deck that had synergies and also had enough gas where you weren't, didn't have as high of a chance of just drawing into lands at various points in the game. That, uh, that, that Probe wasn't totally broken in that format. But. So like Anurag and Wilson, I do think that it should be banned. But at the time of the banning, I thought that perhaps it should have stuck around a little bit longer because when Top was banned, they didn't drag Deathrite Shaman with it, much to people's dismay. I know that some of my close friends felt like at the time of the Top banning, Deathrite should have been banned with it. I think that maybe perhaps 
probe at the time should have been left unbanned to see what the format would have been like if it had been left unchecked because I had envisioned Storm continuing to play probe and then mid-range Grixis control decks. So I thought that Delver would go back to not playing it because it didn't have Cabal Therapy or Pyromancer, unlike these Grixis control style decks. The issue is Arclight Phoenix was printed, what, three months later, four months later? Later. I can't talk, ever. It's a recurring theme the last few episodes. But I think that with Arclight Phoenix in the format, being able to go turn one probe your ritual buried alive is just too strong. Yeah, you know, who knows if that's correct ends up being correct or not. I would personally like to see that because there's a chance that that deck could be good enough to be tier one, but not too strong, which I know someone's. I, I, I would just love to see the Phoenix deck be something that is sort of mainstream and legacy, and I think it still obviously is missing some tools to get there. Maybe Probe could have been that, but we'll never know. Cool. So then let's take a look at the next card Imperial Seal. First question I have before anything, Wilson, is this card in your cube? Yes, it is. It, it, okay, interesting. All right. Brian has a giant chunk of change here with his thoughts on this card. So, Brian, as a Storm player, I feel like this one would hit you the hardest. Would you... Do you think this card is safe to unban? Not likely, but I think it is the closest one to ever being unbanned of the top of the deck tutor. So... Vampire Tutor, Mystical Tutor, Imperial Seal. It is the one that I think would be the safest to come off, but is likely still too powerful. So when uh, Scheming Symmetry was previewed in M20, I saw a lot of people talk about, hey, this card is very close to Imperial Seal. I understand it's not symmetrical, but it does come at a cost and it's sorcery speed, much like Scheming Symmetry. Perhaps maybe one day Imperial Seal could be unbanned. Uh, The issue with this is, I still think one mana top of the deck tutors are still just a little bit too strong. Like there's a reason why they're banned. I know that there's one legal and personal tutor, but it only gets a sorcery. If it got instant or sorcery, I honestly think it would see play, but these effects are too strong. I think one of the more interesting things about Imperial seal, uh, and then even vampiric tutor and mystical tutor are how the metagame would adapt around cards like this being legal. So I could see decks like miracles, maybe perhaps switching back to predict. Or maybe Delver style decks playing Thought Scour and Gurmag Angler. So that way they have a reason to play Thought Scour, but it also will fuel them into their threats. Um, and I think just in general, keep in mind how metagames would adapt and flex to unbannings and bannings of cards. Because while you think Imperial Seal might be nutty, I think that perhaps maybe it could be fine if the metagame was willing to change itself if it were legal, if that makes sense. Like I'm not advocating, advocating for it to be unbanned. I just think that if it were unbanned, perhaps people can change their decks slightly in order to make it not as effective. Yeah, no, I, I definitely see that the, the sorcery speed um, restriction is significant. Just like random things like, you know, you cast Imperial seal and then like, what if your opponent like wastelands a fetch, then you just like, you know, that's a free wasteland basically. Those, those sort of weird like nuances to the card, like they, they definitely add up. That being said, I still think tight play. And then never, mind, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but I feel like it, it, this just goes back to the sort of Gitaxian probe argument, which is the cost that you're paying for the effect is still not great enough. And so for that reason, I'm just not interested in, in something like Imperial seal coming back. I hate to be that guy again in the discussion, but to bring in a non-power level point, 
a playset of Imperial Seals cost about the same as a lot of legacy decks. And I know that... That is fake news. The, the, uh, you can buy Imperial Seals right now for about $200, which is the cost of a Grim Tutor if you chose to play Grim Tutor in your Ad Nauseam Tendrils deck, like Sir Wilson Hunter. I thought they were... I thought they were like minimum 300 with English being like 500 or so. They, it was reprinted as a judge foil. So that brought the uh, cost of them down. Okay. Yeah, I know about the reprinting. I didn't realize it was down to 200. Okay, well, so I take that back. So instead of the price of a full legacy deck, you're getting close to $1,000 for a playset of this new card. So the point still stands. In an era where I, I think accessibility of cards in a format is a big deal, and a lot of interesting new cards are always being printed. The metagame is fairly healthy, all these different things. I don't know if there's a reason we would reach into the Chamber of Secrets and yank this one out there only to see a mass rush to the online retailers to purchase this card. So I'm not even sure that this is too good. It's just annoying, to be honest. Like It is definitely good enough to see play in all sorts of of uh, black-based combo decks, but um, I would just sort of be annoyed by it. Well, also, let's be clear here. It's $200 right now. If it ever did get unbanned, it would not be $200. It would be far more than $200, so um, just just more perspective. Yeah, Either way. I don't think that cost yeah. should necessarily dictate bannings. I understand that, like, it's. I don't think it's reserve list. I could be wrong, but, I mean, Underground Seas hit $800 a couple years ago and then have come down. So, yeah, that's fair. I like that from a from a play perspective. Tabernacles hit three thousand dollars yeah. last year. Not crazy. One tabernacle, twenty seven hundred dollars or something like that. Well, I I personally don't like that. Uh, I don't know. I'm becoming more, let's say, liberal on my perspective. Whoa. On my perspectives on the banned restricted list, but uh, or I guess we let's call it a banned list here. But yeah, I think Tabernacle is actually a problematic card in Legacy. I think that Vintage is a format that should have like basically no ceiling for cost. But I personally am concerned about uh, a healthy Legacy metagame that is accessible for Magic players to get into and enjoy and not just have the people that own the cards staying in there and eventually dying out. So, I don't know. All right, so something very similar to Imperial Seal is Mystical Tutor. Uh, with the printing of the Miracle mechanic, I don't think that Mystical Tutor could ever reasonably be unbanned due to Terminus, but also Temporal Mastery. So I understand that like Temporal Mastery doesn't see any play right now. I think that would change if Mystical Tutor were legal, because once the Miracle deck finally got ahead, they could just make sure that you never got another turn. So once they got their Mentor into play, untapped upkeep Mystical Tutor... And then from there, they would just take over the game. I think that would be a real issue. I don't know if you could make it playable in Delver decks. You might, you may be able to. But the last time that Mystical was legal, Miracles didn't exist as a mechanic. And when it was legal, Blueback Reanimator was dominant. Uh, from like 2008 to 2009, it was just by far the best deck in Legacy. But information back then wasn't as widely adapted and changed like it is now. So... If Mystical Tutor were legal now, I think a lot more decks would be quick to play it, where back then you still had people running Goblins and Survival of the Fittest before it was a really good deck and things like that. Like People wanted to play their pet decks, like the Epic Storm, 
instead of playing these degenerate reanimator decks that every single game on turn two were putting Jenga taxes into play, like that sort of thing. I agree with what you're saying. I think the fact that it is an instant is what probably also crosses the tipping line for me. It's just too easy to... This card is too flexible, I think. Too powerful, too flexible, and that's that's good enough reason to keep it off, uh, keep it where it is for now. So the next one is Memory Jar. I think most of us are on the same page with this one. Anurag actually didn't write his thoughts down, so shame on you. But uh, I don't think that this card is very good. Like people are like, oh, but it's another Wheel of Fortune effect, and you could Cabal Ritual into it. If your if your Cabal th- Ritual has Threshold, it's likely turn three. Turn three in Legacy is the fair game spot. Like your opponent can cast Show and Tell, so they can put Show and Tell into Gristlebrand into play, and then draw fourteen cards, or they can draw seven with Cabal Ritual into Memory Jar. Do you think the Echo of Eons and LED combo is just a better version of Memory Jar? I do. Yeah. And on top of that, this is hit by Pithing Needle or Phyrexian Revoker. It's slowed down by effects like Gaddic Teague or uh, Thalia. It's stopped by Karn the Great Creator. Like, this effect just isn't very good. And if it were unbanned, I don't think Ant would play it. I don't think TS would play it. I think the decks that would play this style of effect are like weird Goblin Welder decks. You just read my mind. I was about to say Goblin Welder. But yeah, I think this card sucks. And they should unban it. Is it in your cube deck or cube? It has been in and out of my cube. Interesting. So some of you may not know this, but Wilson Hunter is a goblin welder enthusiast. Back in the era of 2011, uh, when we were both freshly out of college, Wilson Hunter top-aided a Legacy Grand Prix with Painter Servant. Uh, I don't know if it had Painter, or not Painter, uh, Goblin Welder in it, yes, it but did. I know that Wilson did test with it at the time. I did have Goblin Welder. I was also playing the, it was the Intuition build, so that was uh, Spicy. fun. Did you have a Mind Slaver? No, I did not have a Mind Slaver. I had three Lawans. Talk about Lawan Emperor or something. I was going to say, Lawan sounds so much more exciting than Memory Jars, so. Cephalid Empress, come on now. No, Lawan plus Painter is the combo against Creature decks. Is Lawan banned? Probably should be. Is it on the reserve list? It's from Torment. Just keeping you on your toes, Bryant. Da-da-da. Before Honorog was born, everybody. Yep. <laughs> All right. So the next topic is something near and dear to my heart. I've been in Twitter arguments over this card and group chat arguments over this card. Mind's Desire. So I know that I'm likely the only one on this podcast that has these feelings. I could be wrong. But people, when you say that Mind's Desire should probably be unbanned, they lose their minds. So their first reaction is... Uh, oh my god, what about Desire into Desire? So I think we should start with that Legacy doesn't have the mana that Vintage has. So creating blue-blue on turn one or even turn two is pretty difficult. Like you could go Dark Ritual, Dark Ritual, Petal, Petal, Desire. But how likely is that to happen? But also that's pretty easily disrupted by a Force of Will. And it's just not easy to do. Uh, back when Minus Desire was printed, Flusterstorm didn't exist. So the only way of countering it was Stifle. But now control decks have both Stifle and Flusterstorm as a way of stopping Mind's Desire. Uh, Mind's Desire has never even been legal in Legacy. When it was printed, Legacy was 1.5. So when it was printed, Vintage immediately restricted it to uh, one copy, which meant that it was just banned in Legacy so or Type 1.5. So it never even saw the light of day. And then when the ban list separated, they just assumed that it was still too powerful for Legacy. So it's never even been legal. Uh, 
So going back to the mana point though, so blue blue not being easy and you can counter it. The easiest way of getting blue mana in Legacy is Lion's Eye Diamond. If you're using Lion's Eye Diamond to make blue mana, you're usually using Infernal Tutor, which is counterable, and that takes away from the uncounterability of Mind's Desire. So the beauty of Desire is that it's uncounterable due to the storm mechanic, or pseudo-uncounterable. And when you're playing effects like this, you can meddle with that, and that shows the true strength of Mind's Desire. So... You might want to look at Manamorphose, but the problem with Manamorphose is you're kind of playing a bad card in your deck now to support a likely secondary or even tertiary engine because like Manamorphose just like isn't that good. Like it doesn't make mana and that's not what you want in your Legacy Storm decks. You want cards that are plus one mana or do something for free that have a big impact on the game and mana fixing just isn't quite that. Um, So you might have noticed that I said secondary or tertiary engines. Desire is not better, and I repeat, not better than than Ad Nauseam or Past in Flames. These are cards printed in the last 10 years or so, roughly, uh, that are just better. They are more deterministic in current builds of Storm than Mind's Desire would be. So, like, your average Desire hand, or let's say it's turned through your casting Desire, it's likely for 7, maybe 8 if you're lucky. Past in Flames, if you have that much mana, is just a clean kill in ant like you know that you're going to kill your opponent because it's deterministic as long as there isn't graveyard hate uh, and and tes if you resolve ad nauseum with let's assume you have one mana floating because you could cast desire for six you're going to kill them like ts is designed to kill somebody the second ad nauseum resolves so why exactly is mind's desire good it's because it's uncounterable and the way that you can make it uncounterable is by casting it later on in the game so if you're waiting till turn three or turn four to make this uncounterable against the control deck, it's slow. And once again, I go back to the point of why is this better than Grossel Brand? And if you're slowing yourself down to cast Mind's Desire, it's also worse against decks like Maverick or Death and Taxes, Four Color Loam. All these mid-range decks now have time to catch up because you're playing a card in your deck that's blue-blue. And I I skipped over it, but I just remembered. So like the desire into desire and sins of the past, your desire back. If you're running effects like sins of the past in your deck, you're not running eight, six mana cards in your deck. Think about how clunky that's going to be. Like it's not going to be this like smooth deck where you're just always going to desire on turn two when you're running eight, six mana cards in your deck. Like that's just not the world that we live in. It's not reasonable. And uh, I think that something that we could consider is it might i'm not even sure if it would see playing high tide decks because is this better than time spiral they want to untap their lands this doesn't necessarily do that i could see it complementing time spiral perhaps because if you desire into a time spiral they would get to untap but is giving high tide a bone really a bad thing it would allow them to possibly beat narset uh which is probably the biggest strength of mine's desires it allows storm an engine that gets through narset which is kind of a problem for Ant, and they're already a slower deck, so if Ant's already leaning into being slow, maybe Mind's Desire is the answer, uh, because it's bad against Maverick, it's good against Control, but if you're waiting till turn four against Control, it's probably fine. And uh, if it was legal, I think it'd probably see plays a one-of in both TES and Ant. And I think I've ran out of things to say, so I'll get off my soapbox. I feel oh, no, like no, you've no, got no, a... Before Alaron says anything, before Alaron says anything, I want to... Tell the listener base here, just so that there isn't any uncertainty about this, that the entire point of this episode 
was for Bryant to lull everyone into believing that he is a reasonable person <laughs> and trusting what he has to say so that he can have the community help him convince wizards. This is not true. That that mine's desire would be something fun to come off the band. This is not true. Like, I truly believe that mine's desire would have minimal and That's what someone who wanted mine's desire back would say. <laughs> but all in all, like, those are some really good points. And I feel like some of the points that you've mentioned are just, like, crazy detailed nuance, like, as that you, o- you can only get by playing Storm over and over and again to see sort of what the fetch patterns are like the mana tendencies what you have on what turn and things like that you have to go through so many hands to just have that sort of idea so i i do kind of like it and i i can't i have nothing to say against it because it was just so thorough you know what i mean like like wilson says definitely keep it banned why do you want it banned wilson well first of all replace everything you just said about my okay picture this you just you you've known bryant for a little while you are friends he's like i want to show you something right Bryant opens up a bookshelf, takes you down into a concrete bunker, and all over the walls, you're looking everywhere, you see this just amazing puzzle display of this immaculate theory of who actually killed JFK, (laughs) right? Sounds like Wilson's house. Um, No comment. But... But but to me this this is I, I really appreciate it. I think this is a very well thought out uh, argument. If people could see our show notes, it is just as thought out in in writing form as it was spoken. But it also comes from the mouth of a madman who is wanting to devote his life to the unbanning of this card. No, I'm just kidding. But I will say, let me make my argument for this. So I think that mind's desire it wouldn't totally topple the format by any means. I think that it would replace Ant in that I think that the consistent, slower Storm deck of the format would definitely be a Mind's Desire deck. And in order to build that deck well, you would also need some sort of fast engine. So because of the way uh, the mana is in the card, the mana costs, all of that, um, I think you would want to be casting slower rituals. You would want to you know, have a certain number of lands and play all these different things. I don't think that it would be like what would replace a test strategy or a let's try to win turn two storm deck strategy. Um, but that being said, it's, it's I think the consistency of a slow deck increases tremendously in that you aren't just relying on the discard song and dance. You actually have these this mid to late game sub game of you just are able to take over with the mind's desire if you play well in sort of a game of cat and mouse. So, so think about yeah. how interesting the games would be. I'm playing devil's advocate here where the current control versus storm matchups are always about countering the tutor. Now you have to make them second guess if they should be countering rituals. And and I think that cat and mouse game provides another level to legacy that just isn't there right now. And to me, that makes it more interesting. Like the closest thing that you have is like countering a right of flame for empty of the Warrens. But mind's desire is so much more of a heavy impact card where the fear is much greater. Yeah, it would definitely be fun. So I think that out of all the cards that we have discussed so far, I personally believe that this is the most powerful card that we have discussed. Uh, Mystical Tutor, actually. I don't know. 
I'm not sure how Mystical Tutor would play out in this era of miracles cards and whatnot, but it's pretty close. Um, I know that you mentioned too that like you know what's wrong with throwing High Tide a, a random bone and would they even play this? I want to see the High Tide deck that plays both Frantic Search and Mind's Desire. That would be a pretty fun High Tide deck to have in the. Format. I'd probably want to play that. Yeah, that'd be pretty sweet. So. I do own a lot of nice foil islands waiting for that day. Oh, what what kind of foil islands? I collect it, or maybe we've talked about this in the podcast in the past, but I only use Invasion Basics. So I have Japanese foil Invasion Basics, and I chose one of each art. So I have roughly 30 of each, and I've been working on getting them all signed by the artist. I started during Invasion, so it's sentimental to me. I don't really use like Guru Basics or anything. Like I also just love the Invasion art. Well, uh, Anurag looks like he's sort of fading quickly over here. No, I'm just looking at the, I'm looking at the next card. Like I, I've given my thoughts on Mind's Desire. I just don't think. Here's my thing. I have cast that card maybe three times, once in Cube and a couple times in Vintage, and I would just concede to Brian's expertise in this field because all the reasons that he gave were far better than any reasons I could give otherwise. So, sure. Okay. Well, our next card is Windfall. Uh, are we saying what the cards do? I don't, actually, we didn't for the other one. So hopefully you all know what Windfall does. Bryant, real quick question. Would you unban Time Twister as a preface to discussing this? So I discussed this actually with uh, Echo of Aeons being printed. And Echo of Aeons is a slightly worse Time Twister. I think it is likely three quarters of a Twister if Diminishing Returns is half. I think Twister, if it were legal, would see play, uh, but it wouldn't be format dominating. Like, I think Ant and TS would both probably play two or three. Uh, it would be a rebuilding element because the symmetry of that, if you read my Echo of Aeons article, talks about how backbreaking the symmetry is in Legacy and relating it back to Windfall. It's symmetry, but you can mess with the symmetry. So cards like Surgical Extraction, Fairy Macabre, Force of Negation or Force of Will, Ley Lines, or even Aggressive Mulliganing with the London Mulligan. If you know that your opponent's playing Windfall deck, you could just mulligan to five and keep the best possible five-card hand you have. And now that your opponent's Windfalls are drawing five cards instead of seven and they're more likely to fizzle. Like, there's all these mind games you can play with a card like Windfall, but also being on the player of the draw. So if you're a Maverick, you can go turn one Hierarch Chalice postboard, and now your opponent's Windfall is a draw four. These sort of things, like, there's a lot of play to Windfall, and I think that it's really only good on the play, but also if your opponent isn't expecting or prepared for it. Yeah, what makes Windfall really degenerate is the vintage mana rocks that we do not have in Legacy. And uh, to be fair, though, I think that there are a decent number of turn two plays that are very good. My problem is actually what you describe as you sort of like some of these aspects, but my issue with it is the play-draw variants of Windfall being just utterly extreme. Um, sort of like Black Vice is a card that comes to mind that's similar to that. So I don't like that it's uh, essentially just a, a twister that is just even better on the play and in some scenarios and just doesn't do much on the draw. And because of that, maybe if you're on your power balance equation, that sort of variance actually makes it a card that is not too powerful, but it doesn't make it a card that is necessarily uh, healthy for a format. So I don't know how I feel about it. I could understand that if we were going through like a robotically unbanding cards based on power level, I think Windfall could maybe come off 
of the band list. I'm just not sure that I'd want that to happen. Yeah, I wonder also with the context of Echo of Eons being printed, if the draw seven decks just have too many draw sevens now too. That's another thing that I just hadn't considered earlier. Um, because then the consistency with which you would be, you know, just wheeling, it would be pretty high, right? Even, especially on the play. I don't know. That's that's something frightening to think about. But overall, the fact that Windfall, I mean, it's just so conditional that that sort of conditionality is like you could say like okay, Entomb Reanimate, but like Entomb Reanimate also has some some semblance of a fail rate, right? But Windfall also has that same semblance of a fail rate. So I would begrudgingly let it off the list. Yeah, I think I would. So Anurag mentioned wheeling, which is one of the downfalls of effects like Echo of Aeons or Windfall, because these current storm decks are so discard based with Thoughtseize and Duress. And if you go back 10 years ago, effects like Silence saw play, but now it maybe might be Veil of Summer or Defense Grid, possibly even Silence again. But these are the style of effects that you want when you're playing wheels, not Thoughtseize. So the theme of this episode has sort of been like permanent based hate has now been printed for Storm. If you're playing effects like Silence, Veil of Summer, Defense Grid, you're weakening yourself to Chalice of the Void, Thorn of Amnethyst, Thought Not Seers, those sort of things. So there is a give and take. Not everything is free. And it's something that I've personally experienced recently with playing Defense Grid on my deck, is that Defense Grid is not duress. So in combo matchups, I'm slightly worse. Or prison matchups. So I'm just trying to say that there's a give and take here and that it's not exactly perfect. Like, you do sacrifice somewhere. Okay, cool. All right, and then on to the last card, which is Yogmoth's Bargain. Ooh. What 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 is that reaction for? Spooky. <laughs> okay. Well, uh I would definitely unban Yogmoth's Bargain. In fact, I would have done that a long time ago, and there was a time in which every single unbanning I would get on my computer uh before Right before they made the announcement, I would add a bunch of Japanese foil Yogmoth's bargains to various shopping carts, and I would be ready to to buy them from various websites and people. I don't even know if that would have worked out, but that's what I wanted to do. Um, I think this is like almost like a better ad nauseum engine for Ant, going back to the Mind's Desire thing. Mind's Desire is different, because I think you would build your deck differently. But this would basically be, you would not have the constraint of... of uh, Converted mana cost. Yeah, of converted mana cost and just the various ways you build the deck. And it's also, I believe when you look at average CMC and the way that you build the deck, it's more deterministic in Ant than Ad Nauseum, in addition to being able to play different types of of cards and not have to worry about it. So I think it would improve the deck while also not improving it in a way that would break the deck at all because you would fight the deck in almost the exact same way, um, which is pretty interesting, I think. So yeah, I like it. So I think that there's a, I'm with Wilson. I think it's probably an easy unban for me, but I think there's a few uh, interesting notes that we can look at. So first, this would allow Storm decks to possibly play Force of Will side by side. So if you go back like 12-ish years ago, I want to say, Vintage uh, had a deck called Pitch Long and ran both Unmask and Force of Will in order to protect your Yagmas Bargain getting into play and then it would draw 20 cards and kill you or 19 cards and kill you. But these style of decks also ran more tendrils of agony. So if you needed to, you can mini two, you can mini tendrils midway through in order to keep on drawing. So I think that these style of decks 
may not play Lion's Eye Diamond and Infernal Tutor. They might be more ritual based. I could be wrong, uh, but they probably still play Lion's Eye Diamond, but maybe they're not playing Infernal Tutors. Infernal Tutor also doesn't go super well with Force of Will for what it's worth, but these decks are also weaker against Pithing Needle, Phyrexian Revoker, and Enchantment Hate. So decks like Death and Taxes could gain a little bit more there than they would ad nauseum. So, because th- currently Pithing Needle does nothing to the Storm decks. You can name their fetch lands, and that's about it. So it would give them a target to name that is reasonable. Hey, uh, not to distract from this topic, but Bryant, would you ever play a deck that Merchant Scrolls for a Clutch of the Undercity to transmute for our Tendrils of Agony? I would. I would not. Thanks for asking. All right, well, I think that probably wraps up our comments here. We have this uh, section five in our show notes, let's wrap things up, followed by a really nice white space. So nothing really planned, but I guess I'll give it a stab. Thank you all for listening. Really appreciate it. Thank you to Honorog for really hanging in there for this. I know you don't really like this type of deck that much. I know the topic wasn't incredibly exciting for you, but I think you did a really good job providing valuable insights being an awesome uh, co-host of this podcast. And I just really appreciate your energy and your work on this episode. So thank you. I only have one thing to say to that, Wilson, and that's um, players gathering to cast magic spells. How old and epic only time will tell. Thank, thank you. When are we ever going to release who the, the, the intros are? Because I really want this author to get credit. I mean, I think people can figure it out, but we're not going to be the ones to say it. Also, uh, under Let's Wrap Things Up, our next episode is our mailbag question. We've received zero questions so far. So if you have questions for the podcast, please get them in. We uh, would like to answer something. Otherwise, we're just going to talk about honey the entire time. So I'm down. Don't if anybody who sends a question is banned. Perma banned. <laughs> All right, let's go. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to my madman rants. And uh, have a good night. Bye.